Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with an autism patient leader and caregiver, Dana Kelsey. You may recognize her from her Instagram feed at autism underscore IRL, where she chronicles the day in the life of taking care of her brother, Rob, who lives with autism. And she's a WeGo Health Award winner. We're going to talk all about it. Dana, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. It's so nice. We've been saying how nice it is to just get chatting when we got the chance to get to know each other back in October when we were both WeGo Health Award winners. And it's just lovely to connect in the midst of this pandemic. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and also, I love getting the caregiver perspective um, on chronic illness and uh, invisible conditions. So this is a really fun discussion to have with you today. And for those of you who watch autism, uh, underscore IRL, um, the videos that Dana posts, I mean, especially right now, like these are the videos we need right now. Um, (laughs) if I don't say so myself, I mean, there's so much joy that you capture on a daily basis, even in the struggles. Um, and Rob is just such a, a happy guy and, um, clearly well taken care of and well loved and just goes to show the love that's in your family. And it's a really nice thing to have a glimpse into that at all times, but especially now when we're all feeling a bit distant from the world uh, in the midst of the COVID pandemic. So uh, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Yeah, well, thank you. That's so kind. Rob is a pretty charming guy. So, you know, he's all on his own. (laughs) Yes, he's very charming. Even He is. He's charming all by himself, but it's really nice to see the interactions that uh, you guys all have together and it's just, it's fantastic. So I'm excited to talk more about it. So I figured we'd go back to the very beginning as we do in all these interviews. And if you could tell us when and how your family first realized that Rob had something going on and what steps you've taken to help him lead a full life. Sure. Um, from, you know, what I've, I've gathered from my parents, they said it, it really started when he was around two years old that's when they noticed um, a delay in his speech, which is something pretty common with an autism diagnosis. One of the first things that a lot of parents recognize is delayed speech. Um, So from there, you know, they went to speech pathologists, they followed up with their pediatrician. And two years later, when he was four years old, um, he was officially diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Um, From that point, working with some doctors in the area, they were able to get in touch with a few agencies that offered services. Um, unfortunately there was a lot of wait lists. So we ended up, my family ended up going down to Philadelphia. There was an Institute down there that specialized. I think they referred to it as uh, brain injured children and autism oh, was wow. lumped into that group. That's very um, interesting. That's a, a real indication of the time in which that happened. Yes. Yes. And, and that was the problem too. My brother was he was born in 1985. And back then the cases of autism, I think it was like two in 10,000. And the numbers today is one in 54 are diagnosed. So, you know, the doctors themselves didn't have a lot of knowledge about autism. You know, Mm. my parents weren't given a clear direction. They're like, oh, well, maybe we know of this place an hour away that could help you. Oh, we think we've heard of X, Y, and Z. There was never a clear cut path of okay, your son has autism. Here are the steps to follow. Mm. The doctors were almost learning in conjunction with my parents, which is scary. Yeah. You know, you're, you're diagnosed with this disorder and you have no help. You have mm. no idea what to do. Um, and so were for, you, are you older than Rob? Were you born before or after? No, I was after. I'm two and a half years younger than Rob. Okay. So you got, you were born around the same time that he was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think I was a, a year old, year and a half old when he was diagnosed. Wow. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we've, my parents had to kind of find their own way and they went to some conferences and tried to find anything that they could to help Rob. And, and unfortunately, some of, some of the paths they went down weren't the most effective. They kind of got sucked into a lot of the biomedical treatments, which... Mm-hmm 
don't have a lot of evidence supporting their efficacy, and and some of them can be kind of harmful. He went through uh, secretin injections, chelation therapy to mm. remove heavy metals from his blood, and but back in the day, it was it was something that was promoted as an effective treatment to help with the behaviors associated with autism. Mm. But years later, research would come out to say that you know that's not really the case. Um, Do you think it's also that the perception has shifted that like back in the eighties, the idea was that autism was, uh, you know, with these treatments, like autism was kind of a mistake, like, whereas now we're sort of like autism is, there are people who are born with autism and that's that it's not really like a reversible. Yeah. I think, you know, and back then too, um, some of the bigger organizations that are known for autism advocacy were so dead set on promoting a cure for autism. The, these were the conferences that they got sucked into. It was like the Defeat Autism Now, the Dan conferences. Mm. And so much focus was placed on there is something so wrong with him. There's something so wrong with him. You have to fix it. Look for a cure. Look for a cure, which is Did you awful. guys subscribe to that in the family? Like, was that ever a feeling that you guys felt like he was broken? No, never. We just, you know, we always just wanted to see him live the best life he possibly could. My parents wanted to see him gain some type of communication skills, whether it was vocal speech or not. You know, we went back and used uh, the PEC system with pictures um, for augmented communication to try to help him, you know, find his voice. And, and he's, he's, you know, semi-vocal. He, he can vocalize his wants and needs. He can be a little hard to understand if you're not familiar with him. Um, but, but for those of us who watch his, his videos, we've got, we know his language now. <laughs> I know, right? Rob's Rob Lingo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is interesting because this is a, another characteristic of autism, isn't it? It's that, you know, there's often a focus on specific patterns or words, you know, and these become the language that, that he, mm-hmm. especially nonverbal communicators or, you know, communicators like Rob who have some words that he uses and others that he doesn't, that like these become his language. Yeah, absolutely. He's, you know, it's, it's funny because my mom and I will pick up and know super quick if Rob says a couple words like, oh, he said this, but we know he means like this and he wants this. And other people are like, what? How yeah. do you know that? I'm like, it's just Rob. You <laughs> just know, the same way you know he's... with babies. <laughs> right, exactly. Like he's just found a way to tell us and, mm. and this is what it is. Um, but yeah, we never subscribe to like curing or fixing any part of his autism. <laughs> right. Yeah. You guys are, seem very accepting as a family. I mean, it's a real family effort, especially because in recent years, you've become one of his full-time caregivers too, right? Yes, I have. Yeah. Um, two and a half years ago, I left um, my job out in Massachusetts uh, at a school that specializes in autism education to move back home and help my parents care for Rob. So you were already, I mean, the fact that when you were born, you had a brother who was diagnosed with autism obviously shaped your career, Um, you know, that you went into teaching in special education and now are back home and and between you and your parents are are really his full-time care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty amazing. It's why we get these wonderful insights into the day-to-day with you guys. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So um, does that mean that you're also at this point Rob's primary caregiver and advocate, or is that something that's shared among all the family members? It's pretty equal across all the family members. I am, you know, technically right now hired as his direct support professional in New York State. So I am there 40 hours a week also implementing his community habilitation plan um, and the objectives that he has in his service plan. Um, but when I'm not there, it's my parents, you know, so it's, it's a joint effort. It's, it's all three of us. And I mean, my mom and my dad have been advocating for him since, you know, two years old, since they knew something was wrong. Um, so it's just all, all three of us share the load. Yeah, absolutely. And forgive me if this is too personal, you don't have to answer this, but I'm also wondering, especially with your parents, you know, is there an awareness of mortality in the long-term care situation here that like, Rob's going to outlive them, you know, and are they sort of going, all right, how do we make long-term care plans that are going to work for everyone and for you that enable you to also live independently? It's something that we've begun to talk a lot about recently. Um, Rob 
I don't know if you're familiar with his story, but he did have well, people a traumatic- who are listening. Yeah. So please share with us. <laughs> okay. So Rob following high school, he aged out of high school at 21. Um, went into a day program for autistic adults and other people with developmental disabilities in the area. And unfortunately, he was involved in a traumatic assault incident with one of the day program staff. Um, And it was something that took him and my family a long time to recover from, took us probably 10 years. And this happened in 2009. Um, So we're talking recently is when Rob really started to kind of make some gains and and overcome a lot of the behaviors associated with his PTSD diagnosis following that. And I think a lot of those years were just so focused on survival and getting Rob back to a place of, of you know, quote unquote, normalcy for him, getting bringing him back from this incident. Um, so not not a whole lot of, of future planning was really done in that time. It was just the day-to-day, what do we need to do to get through today? How do we help Rob today? Um, but like I said, since I've moved home, um, it's it's become a bigger conversation because there aren't a lot of great programs in the area. There aren't a, great, a lot of great long-term options for him. Um, so, you know, right now we're just in this weird, ambiguous gray area of, of well, the pandemic doesn't help. What are we really going to do? No, oh my God, please. No, my anxiety related yeah. to this topic has, has been pretty intense. Um, mm. because in our household, my dad is the sole income provider. My mom stays home to take care of my brother. So, you know, either situation, if I lose one parent or the other, or lose both parents, whenever that's going to be, I'm going to have some very big shoes to fill. Um, yeah. all around. So it's, yeah. it's, it's tough. It's, it's one of those realities though, as an autism sibling, as, as somebody with a sibling who has a, a disability or, or developmental disorder that requires 24 hour care. Um, it's, it's a tough situation to be in, but again, it's, it's, it's just one of our, our realities. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, right now the world's on hold in many ways. So mm-hmm. I suppose it gives you time to sort of work through some of the anxieties, even though there's nothing you can do about a lot of stuff yeah. right now. Yes. But I, I also guess that when a lot of the sanctions are lifted and we can all sort of get back out in the world again, which could be a couple of years, who knows, mm-hmm. you know, that that will be the time when you can start enacting longer term plans. And this is sort of like the time to do research and to maybe take a breather a little bit too. Yeah, definitely. You know, we we are doing our best to kind of stay home and find fun things to do with Rob at home. And and he he lives well at, at home. You know, he has his little routine that he's into every day, his movies and, and game shows he likes to watch. Um, you know, so he successfully lives at home. He definitely has a lot of skills that he could he could gain in terms of of you know, increasing his independence, but he, he does. Okay. You know, we're doing okay. And that's all we can really ask for right now. And that's something that's got to be frustrating too, though, because you guys had gotten him into a really wonderful art therapy program Mm -hmm. right before it hit. And Rob was really digging it. And of course you can't go right now. And that's got to be hard for him too, because he's adjusting to these changes in his routine when he was just beginning to find healing and be able to interact with new people comfortably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been that's been one of the hardest losses with this current situation. Um, because his the the incident he was involved in eleven years ago happened out in the community. It was in a store. So for Rob, any place leaving the house felt so unsafe for so long. And like you said, we found this amazing place with Vartan, who is a wonderful, kind instructor and has taken so well to Rob and Rob has taken so well to him. So like you said, to have that kind of pulled out from underneath us right now, it's like, oh, it, yeah. like, it hit it hit hard. But like I said, Rob, Rob seems to be handling it okay. Uh, fortunately, he's used to being home. Uh, for extended periods of time. And like I said, he gets himself into his little home routine and does okay. Um, But it builds, you know, when he's uh, just like any of us, you're home for a long period of time, you're isolated from the world, you kind of get antsy, you get a little bit, you know, frustrated a little bit more easily. Um, and, and we do our best to, to keep Rob's day fun and, and ha- plan little surprises and do some outdoor activities. But 
yeah, losing, losing art class was, was hard. We had two and a half months under the belt. We were going every week uh, for two and a half months and it was great, but we're, we'll get back there. You know, as, as soon as some of these restrictions start to get lifted and testing is a little bit more widespread, um, we'll, we'll find a way to get back to art. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cause that's been a real instrument in healing, not just for Rob, but for you guys too, for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Like we said, to see him be so comfortable in an unfamiliar place with an unfamiliar person has been fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell us what a typical day looks like for Rob and how are you balancing the demands of work and life as you manage his schedule? I mean, he's your full-time job, but obviously you've got a life outside of him too. So (laughs) we want to know what that's like for you as well. And, and sort of like what Rob's typical day is like, and also what Dana's typical day is like. Yeah. Rob, um, his sleep schedule can get a little funky sometimes, especially He's like me. He's a day sleeper. <laughs> he, is, he is a day sleeper. <laughs> we love naps. <laughs> um, but it, it, it all depends. He'll, he'll sleep for an extended period of time. And on days where he's, he's been up most of the night and is planning on day sleeping, I'll cut him a little bit of a break. I'll, I'll bother him every once in a while and make him wake up you know, here and there and answer a few questions for me or like, look at some pictures and we'll talk about some stuff and then I'll let him go back to sleep. Um, but on days where he's awake, most of the time during the day, he likes to get up and start his day usually with a game show. So he'll want to wake up. Mm -hmm. He likes to watch the price is right. He loves Loves password plus. Um, I mean, I don't blame him. (laughs) Right. Loves it all. (laughs) Um, and then, you know, we, we interject some activities, but we really kind of let Rob guide his day. Um, again, there's, there's no need to force him into some crazy, insane, unattainable schedule because for him, that's just not realistic. You know, his home is where he lives. It's where he's comfortable. So we'll plan things. And especially since the weather is nice, we, my mom and I like to do a lot of gardening and we usually have Rob help. He likes to water. He likes the hose. Um, so we'll have him water the garden. We'll have him plant, help us plant some seeds. We'll try to get outside for some time on a scooter. He also loves bubbles. Um, oh, again, he has excellent taste. <laughs> right? Isn't it great? We have, a lot, we have a lot of fun. You know, it's yeah. a job, but like, it's great. I get to hang out and have fun with Rob. Yeah. Um, so we'll make sure we do a lot of that. But then we also make sure we give him a lot of downtime. He likes to also watch uh, a lot of Sesame Street videos on YouTube, listen to mm-hmm. music. Um, so it's just, it's balancing out Rob's wants of the day and then the things that we have to get done, you know, in terms of his service plan and his objectives. But we always find a fun way of mixing those into our day. Mm, absolutely. What about you? I mean, it's interesting because, so this is your full-time job, you know, and you've moved back home to take part in taking care of him. Um, how has this affected your life and the way that you see your career trajectory and, and just the way you see your life trajectory? You know, it's, it's been quite the change. (laughs) Um, I, at my previous job was kind of on track to get into the staff training fields and get into the professional development department, um, and kind of solidify my spot in the company for a while. Um, but everything, the way things played out, it was the best time for me to kind of leave that life behind and move home to help out before things became too serious with my parents' health or anything like that. Um, so it's been a a big adjustment, big adjustment. Um, it took me a long time to kind of figure out what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go with this, what I needed to focus on, because it was just so different, you know, in my in my previous life, in my previous career, I was working full time. I was in school full time. Um, and you know, it it was just, it was different. And now I'm home and and things are a lot quieter. I don't have as many responsibilities in terms of the job. You know, I don't, I don't Are you living at home too? You're living with your, no, no, you got your own place. Yes. That was number one. That's a great boundary because you have to take care of yourself. Yes. It definitely was needed. I lived at home the first couple of months, um, pretending to do the whole, oh, I'm going to save money and not have rent. (laughs) But for sanity's sake, I got my own place. Um, And that's been helpful too. But like I said, it's, it was an adjustment, but it's been nice. I've been able to kind of scale back and, and focus on the things that are important. 
and focus on my family and focus on, like you said, focus on the future and really start kind of solidifying our plans for the future and focusing on how we're going to tackle this because it's not something that's going to be just short term right now. Like Robert is going to need long-term care and whether I'm going to be the one providing it or we're going to find other people that are going to help provide it. Again, these are all conversations that we kind of consistently have been having recently. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I, I do my best to, you know, once I leave, leave home slash work, I do my best to kind of focus on myself. I used to love going to the yoga studio, but <laughs> my instructor is amazing and, and she's been running classes on Zoom. You know, I've right. been doing a lot of online yoga. I get out for walks in the woods. I have a lot of, of FaceTime dates with friends. Um, so, you know, I, I try to find my own balance of, of my life and focusing on me, but then also being really focused on Rob, you know, throughout the mm-hmm. week when I'm there. Absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting role to be playing too, because while you're not giving yourself up entirely when you're with him, because he's part of who you are, he's your brother, you know, and you're with your family. It is, you know, this idea of caregiving too, which we we haven't covered in a lot of detail on the show, but it's interesting to me because as a caregiver, what you do is you give up of yourself entirely for the time that you're with whoever it is you're taking care of. And in this case, 40 hours a week with your brother, you know, but of course, because he's your brother, the cares are going to extend beyond those 40 hours. I mean, he's someone whose life you're invested in, in every way. So I, you know, I wonder, obviously this is the reality you've always known on, on some level, but also what effect has that had on perhaps the expectations that you had for the direction of your life or, um, you know, where, where you, how you feel about where you're going and where you are. I mean, you knew at some point that you would probably be full-time back on the caregiving team. And so like, this is now what's happened and it seems to make a lot of sense. I'm just curious about the psychological effect of all of that on you too. It's, it can be tough. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking that this is something I'm going to have to do for the duration of our lifetimes can Mm. be pretty overwhelming. and to be honest, it's it's not something I let myself think about too much because it, it can spiral and it can go down a really bad path for me in terms of of my mental health. Mm. Um, but I think that that's I think that that's normal. That's not something that that I would say is 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 outside of the norm. Mm. Um, again, I, I know I'm not the only one in this position either. I know that there are are family members who are providing long term care for others. Um, and I'm sure that they feel, feel similar too. Um, so it's, again, like I said, it can be overwhelming, but it's, it's something I try not to think too much about. I, I just, I know that I have, have educated myself and gotten the experience that I need to understand the type of care that Robert requires. Um, so I feel very equipped to help train other people in, in caring for Rob. Now that Mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time, you know, getting reacquainted with him, it took us a while. It took us a long time to get reacquainted with each other and to kind of learn the ins and outs of, of his home routine and his life with mom and dad at home and how I could help him gain some skills within that setting. So now that we've kind of gotten to know each other really well, again, um, I, like I said, I feel very equipped to be able to train some, somebody else mm. in the future to get to know Rob. And, and I think that going to art class and seeing Rob and Vartan together gives me even more hope that mm. there have to be other people out there who would be able to fill a caregiver role for him besides myself and be successful in it. Yeah, absolutely. And what about you? Like, do you also, we know that there are now services, you know, in place to support Rob and his education and his ongoing care. Are there services available to caregivers like you for ongoing care too, like be that mental health services or otherwise that you're also offered support? Um, Through, I think, so through the individual companies typically that employ these individuals who are in my position will typically provide some type of, you know, uh, mental health uh, uh, care, whether mm-hmm. that's on site with a, a local counselor that they have, you know, in their building, but there isn't, you know, a broad general, you know, statewide or, or federal mandate that, mm-hmm. that allows 
us to easily access any type of, of mental health services. It's not like, oh, your copay is waived, here you go, right. free therapy. It's still something that, that falls under, you know, our, our personalized insurance. Right. Um, and it, I think it's something that needs to be prioritized. And I, I think it's something that isn't given a mm. lot of forethought. And it is something that needs, you know, to be advocated for because it's important. It's, yeah. it's crucial because if, you know, if my head's not on straight and, and I don't have myself together, how, how am I supposed to care for Rob the best that I can? Yeah. You know, it's that whole, make sure your cup is filled before you fill anyone else's. I mean, this is prime example, mm. you know, anybody who's in a caregiver role. And these are conversations that I've had a lot with my mother too. Um, because my father has worked full time as, yeah. you know, as long as I've been alive. So he sometimes has days where he's out of the house. He does work from home too. And especially now he's home all the time. Um, but there were days he would get out of the house and he could kind of step away from the situation. But my mom has been in the trenches for 34 years, you know, as long as Rob's been alive. And it's, it's a conversation that we've had a little bit too, because when you're in this role, it's so easy to just give all of yourself to the other person. Especially just, when it's a relative. <laughs> Exactly. And well, for her, especially when it's her son, you know, yeah. how, how you feel so selfish taking time away from him to give time to yourself. Um, but it's conversations we've had recently, how important it is to, even if it's, you know, five minutes to yeah. do something that you like to do. Um, but the mental, mental health aspect of, of caregiving is, can be very tough. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fraught. It seems to me, especially because it's taken, you know, 30 plus years for social services to be in place to support a patient like Rob, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I guess the next step in the evolution of that process is the support to caregivers as well, which maybe in another 35 years we'll have. (laughs) Maybe. And, you know, the services they have in place to help individuals like Rob are not great either. Right. So, I mean, they're technically there on paper, but... (laughs) Yes. Well, and I'm interested in, in digging into that in a little bit too. I'm also wondering, I mean, you mentioned, you know, especially early on in Rob's diagnosis and when he was younger, you know, this experience that your parents had in going to different conferences and and trying different therapies uh, where the underlying thought was that autism was something that could be remedied, right? And I'm wondering if any of you have been in situations where you've been confronted and forced to justify or validate Rob's diagnosis with someone who didn't understand it because they just couldn't see it and, and what those experiences look like for you guys. I know it was something my mom faced a lot when he was younger. Um, because the thing with autistic individuals is that there is no physical marker. There's nothing physically about them that screams I'm autistic, right? It's, it's mostly behavioral. Um, he looks like a normal kid. Yeah. Right. Yes. You know, it's, it's, so it's hard. It can be tough because when he was younger, people would see this kid who would be like jumping around and yelling and and their first instinct is, oh, he's just a brat. Oh, he's just an out of control child. So my mom had to definitely walk that line a lot more when he was younger. Um, Now that he's older, Rob does a pretty good job justifying his autism all on his own. Um, (laughs) You know, you see a 34 year old man running through the parking lot with his hands waving in the air. Like, you know, you can, I'm just like, he's super enthusiastic. (laughs) You're right. He's a party. Rob's a party. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's been a little bit different as he's been older too. And I mean, Mm. you know, you, you see, uh, again, a 34 year old bearded man walking hand in hand with his like mom and sister into a doctor's appointment. And it's, you know, there's, there's more subtle signs since mm. he's been older that, that something isn't a hundred percent. Right. Um, but like I said, that was something I think my mom con- confronted a lot when, when he was younger, the first pediatrician that she actually took him to refused to believe that he was autistic. He's like, Oh, he doesn't mm. act autistic. If he was autistic, he would be waving his hands doing this. And I guess he like imitated, <gasps> did some imitations that don't seem very politically correct these days. And was yeah. like, he's not autistic. Um, so again, she had to advocate and push and push and push and eventually went outside for a, a second opinion to get the, a formal diagnosis. Um, so even with doctors, she has had to justify it in the past. But like I said, it's, it's not, it's not something we really have run into recently with him. 
Do you think also, and I, I ask everyone about the role of privilege versus prejudice, you know, in their experience of the healthcare system. And I'm wondering when it comes to Rob as, you know, perhaps he presents as the most privileged, right. You know, as a white mm-hmm. male in the healthcare system, but his caregivers are two white females, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm wondering because of the way that he presents and the way that his advocates, you and your mom present, can you see your circumstances being different with this journey to diagnosis and this journey through treatment or, you know, support services? If he presented otherwise, like maybe if you'd been a family of color or if his advocate had full-time maybe been your dad, or do you think things would have looked different for you guys? Yeah, I I definitely think that, that, you know, being white has led us to have some privilege, especially within the healthcare system. I I mean, it's, it's tough because his diagnosis as, you know, with autism, we've seen discrimination from doctors, from healthcare providers been told that, you know, they would no longer see us or service us because of his diagnosis and because he's not vocal. We, we would get a lot of pushback because he can't advocate for himself. So trying to find mental health services for Robert, that's actually been something we've been working on recently, um, has been very difficult because a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists will refuse to see him because he is non-vocal. So that wow. in and of itself has been very difficult. And that's well. So that's a great example of prejudice against anyone who's got an autism diagnosis. Yes, right. Yeah. And And the thing with autism too is that there is a lot of, you know, systemic racism within the autism community as well in terms of advocacy and support. Um, I mean, back when he was diagnosed in in the eighties, autism was thought of as and and presented as a a white boy disease, white little boys who are autistic. You know, if you, if you look at the advertising and you look at the media that was used um, specifically to with with autism speaks, which, which is a hot topic, very controversial within the autistic community. A lot of autistic individuals who are able to self-advocate speak out vehemently against autism speaks for a variety of reasons. Um, but they're an organization too. If you look at their marketing and you look at their media, it's a, it's a lot of white kids. You see a lot of white boys, a lot of white girls and and probably children. the systemic racism in the healthcare system. It's probably because the white people were the only ones who were getting diagnosed at first. Exactly. And then yeah. and again, that's, you know, it, it leads to this bigger conversation of, of racism in society in general. And that because we are white, you know, middle-class white folk that we are privileged enough to have access to healthcare and have access. But that doesn't to... mean that that's adequate either, does it? No, mm. not at all. So it's, 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 tricky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, what I else can you say? It is tricky. Right. It's, it's yeah. tricky because you do in some cases know that you are privileged and, and able to access other things that you might not otherwise. Mm. Um, but then you still see areas in which you are discriminated against because of his diagnosis. Yeah. That's really tough. Well, let's mm-hmm. dig into the healthcare system a little bit. I'm wondering given your experience, not only with Rob, but also with other kids that you worked with and other patients that you worked with mm-hmm. um, before coming home to, to work with Rob, you know, in what ways are you seeing the healthcare system work for autism patients? And in what ways do you see these services really falling short and requiring improvement? I'm sure that there's a lot that you can, uh, you can see right away, and I'd love to get your take on it. It works really well now for young children who are first receiving a diagnosis, young and younger school age children works well. They, they have a lot of mandated therapies in place. Insurance typically will cover the therapies that parents are seeking. It all falls apart when these kids age out of school. And they go from school-based services into Medicaid-funded state services. So crossing that bridge and making that transition from high school age to adult age is is where, you know, you see a lot of services kind of drop off. And that's where you see staff 
really who are unqualified to be working with this population end up in the jobs as these these caregivers and and these service providers because once it crosses the line into state funding and these are adults you're dealing with the the requirements for the job are less so like the organization that I was working at out, out in Massachusetts they typically hired you know kids straight out of college, college degrees, you have a four-year undergraduate degree and you're coming to work here um, to work with these school-aged kids. Um, not not 100% the case. Um, and I know that some of their requirements have, have become less strict, but there's still this level of education and there's a level of training that they receive at this private company um, that is just unparalleled. And and then you go from that to to a state funded program where it's anybody off the street who needs a job. Essentially, you know, you you have a high school diploma. Okay, great, you can work with us. It's you know, and that's not to say that that education is everything, but to some extent, when you're when you're talking about autistic individuals, you need to be able to have a level of understanding, and tr- you need to be able to absorb the training that you should be getting. Um, in order to provide care in a meaningful, kind way. Um, and it's, it's just tough. And it's hard because it's, you know, staff like myself who work as DSPs, the pay isn't great. The Tell us what a, a DSP means for people D- who are... Oh, DSP is a direct support professional. There we go. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, the pay is not great. And a lot of mm. times other people are working second and third jobs in order to make ends meet. So if, if you're, how are you attracting quality people to the job too, if you're not offering good pay and if you're burnt out, that's where it's like, where does your support come in? Yeah. Right. And that's, and that's the issue we saw too, um, with Robert and his, his, his incident. Um, the staff that was working with him was frustrated with Rob because Rob couldn't communicate his needs. He reached a level of frustration and I'm sure that there were other things going on in his life that were also frustrating, but you carry all of that with you into the job and then here it is, you know, you completely destroyed an individual's life Yeah, and, and it, you know, and it's, but it's hard because you can't blame the people that are in these positions. Again, it's, it's a bigger issue. It's, it's a funding issue. It's, it's mm. a state regulatory issue. Um, it's these agencies, not vetting people who are working with these individuals, not providing the adequate training that's needed. Mm. Um, Again, it's 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 kind of a mess. The adult services area is not pretty, um, and it can be very tough for for families to to go from receiving such high quality, high end, forty hour a week services to getting almost nothing. And if you can't yeah. find a staff member to come in to implement your your service program, then you're you know you're SOL. That's it. It's yeah. good luck. You know, we know you both have full-time jobs, but your kid aged out of services and we have nothing for him. He's on a wait list for three years. Maybe you'll mm-hmm. get services then, figure out how to watch him and take care of him. Why do you think it is that the adult services are so underfunded? Is it because the kids aren't cute anymore? Like, is it, a, is it that simple? You know, I, I definitely think that that has something to, that comes into play. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, <laughs> again, you, for these companies, even like the companies I worked at, a lot of the advertisements to gain staff's attention to come work here. Look at how cute and fun these kids are. You get to go on the swings and blow bubbles. And right. again, you see those cute little kids and they're like, oh, that looks so fun. I would love to do that. Sub in a 34-year-old bearded man on a swing <laughs> with bubbles and like maybe not as attractive. I would say for some, I would some. love to blow bubbles and <laughs> sit on swings with Rob for anyone who like watches your channel. I think it's such a great example of how the spirit is exactly the same. He might be in a 34 year old man's body and have a beard now, but like it's about the spirit, not about the body. And that's what's yeah. so interesting about this entire conversation because the spirit is such an infectious one to be around. I mean, Rob's such an infectiously happy, lovely human. And it's also like, why wouldn't people want to be around that? Because right. just because someone gets an autism diagnosis doesn't mean they're not the most lovely human being to spend time with. 
Exactly. No, you're exactly right. And that was a big, a big reason why I did want to want to get into Instagram and, and start this kind of advocacy journey, because I wanted people to see that. That's exactly what I wanted people to see. I wanted mm. them to see how much fun it can be to hang out with Rob all day. And it's like, why wouldn't you want to do that? Like, yeah. it's great. I love it. Um, but it's, it's a lot of it too has to do with the funding. It mm. has to do with the funding and and the funding, a lot of it is coming from legislation and the federal government. And it's just not a service that it, the need hasn't been recognized as it should have been. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's so much focus on early intervention and helping these kids out early, which yes, very important, extremely effective, but that doesn't take into account the population of adults who've already aged out of all of these services and are trying to make it on their own and, and, and trying to find services, you know, for them. Mm. Um, but a lot of it is, is funding and politics. And I yeah. mean, you know, it's, there's only so much that you can do with the services that you're given. And, and again, uh, the, because of the funding that prevents a lot of these organizations from providing the type of training that, that you need to give people in, in my position. Yeah. Well, and then you're also in that situation that you guys are in right now where you're in a single income household. And how are you then supposed to pay for additional services that maybe you could afford privately, but you can't afford that when only one person's able to work and everyone else is a full-time caregiver. So it's a real catch 22. You're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Absolutely. And, and it's very unfortunate because you know, I like, like a lot of other areas in life, money talks and money yeah. can get you whatever you want. And, and there are, you know, I know of very well off financially families who have come together to put together a, a group home for their set of, of, you know, autistic children and hiring specific staff and being able to cherry pick and handpick, you know, the mm. best of the best to continue to work with their kids for the extended duration we're not one of those families, mm. <laughs> you know, it's, we, we don't have the money to, to open up our own group home, or we don't know any, any wealthy families in the area that would want to go in together on, on some type of group living facility, um, for Robert and other, other autistic adults. And, and that's something and that again, could be a long-term solution. So that then affects, you know, yeah. the planning. Absolutely. So again, it's, it's this area where the services are not equal at all. State to state mm. services are different. County to county services are different. Yeah. Um, there's just, like I said, there's no regulation on a federal level when it comes to adult services for yeah. autistic individuals. Well, tell us a little bit more about why you started Autism IRL. Um, we know that you won a WeGo Health Award, um, mm -hmm. you know, for the work that you've been doing as an advocate for your brother and, um, I'm fascinated to know. I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier that you started it because you wanted people to see how wonderful it can be to work with autistic adults, um, which is certainly true. Um, I mean, I get it. So, you know, I, I totally, I can't wait to like visit you guys and meet Rob, you know, <laughs> right. but it's like, I, I'm curious to know how your advocacy work has extended beyond just your work with Rob, you know, into the community and, and what you've learned as an advocate. Yeah, it's, you know, like I said, I, I originally started it because I, I did want people to see this other side of autism, that, mm -hmm. that adults with autism exist, that kids with autism grow up, and, and they can live a happy, independent life at home. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, been, it's been great. I've been able to connect with so many different individuals kind of across the globe and, and come into contact with families who are just newly diagnosed. And, and they are like, oh my gosh, I recognize so much of my child and Robert. It's so great to, to have this hope that, you know, his future will be okay. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been great to connect on, on that level. And I've also been able to connect a lot more with, with the self-advocating autistic community and adults who have been diagnosed later in life. Um, and that's a very, very interesting and necessary perspective to have. Um, to learn from from adults who have lived the life of a, an autistic individual, because you know, I I only know from my perspective as Robert's mm -hmm. sister, and I know as an autism professional and a BCBA about autism. But to be able to learn about autism from autistic individuals is extremely important, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another area too, that doesn't get enough. They don't get enough of a platform. They don't have enough of a voice because they have people who think they know better or know, you know, know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been great too. I've been able to connect with a few, um, individuals in, in that community as well. So I just feel like being in this social media world and on this platform, I've, I've gained a lot of insight and mm-hmm. I hope I've given some to other people too. Um, you know, a lot of families that, that I've been able to connect with. So it's, it's been great. And like you mentioned, um, it all kind of accumulated and led to a we go health award, um, which was awesome because I got to, you know, come to Vegas and meet all of you guys and, and talk about autism on, on, you know, a stage at the MGM in Vegas. And there were two other autism. I mean, one wasn't able to attend, but like in those awards, there were aside from you, two other autism, uh, patient leaders, you know, Mm -hmm. one being, uh, parents who are caregivers of a nonverbal autistic, uh, teenager. Mm -hmm. And then, um, the other being Dan Jones, who's been on the show. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, someone who is advocating for himself, as you've mentioned, as an adult living Mm -hmm. with Asperger's. So it's, it's interesting you know, that like these patient leadership awards have also recognized not just the caregivers, but the patients also, and everyone who's sort of contributing to this conversation about being an adult living with this condition. Yeah, absolutely. That was great to see. You know, like I said, it's autism has had a had a rough go over the years in mm-hmm. terms of advocacy and awareness and acceptance. Um, and it's still, you know, we have a long ways to go. Um, like a lot of other disorders um, do. Well, because there are still a lot of people who think that, I mean, it's also fraught with the whole anti-vaxxing debate, right? That like, oh my God. There's, yeah. there's, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm fascinated on your take on this one too, because it divides the autism community in a way, doesn't it? Because there are some who just accept, you know, okay, autism, this is something that, you know, either it's genetic or it's a, it's a condition of, of birth. It's not anyone's fault. And there are others who think, okay, it's a vaccine that caused my child to have autism. I mean, realistically, where are you and a lot of these other patient leaders falling, you know, in terms of how, how fraught that division is within the autism community itself? That is a tough one. And I will yeah. say personally, myself, I am a very firm believer in science and data. Yeah. So... If you That's look a very at the nice science. way of answering that question. <laughs> <laughs> she believes in vaccines, guys. That's what she's telling us. <laughs> yes. I, please. Please vaccinate your children. children. <laughs> please. <laughs> um, yes. And it's, but it's hard because you can't, you can't dismiss the claims of these mothers who did you know, kind of see their children regress around that age. Mm. Um, There was actually a very, a very informative article. uh, I think NPR was, was the one that released it maybe a few months ago. Oh, I can't even, you know, I don't even know what date is anymore. Um, But a while, a while back (laughs) where they talked about the myelination process and and how that impacts um, potentially an autism diagnosis and if you look at that, that occurs right around that same age, mm. that two years, three years when you start vaccinating your children. Again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not the one researching and studying this. Um, but I do believe vaccines are important. Mm. And I do believe you should vaccinate your children. It's but it is, it is divisive. Such a t- it's, it's so divisive. And it's such a touchy subject for people too, because it's like, as you say, how do you dismiss the claims of a mother who sees her kid decline at a certain age? Like, you can't, you can't tell someone it's Mm -hmm. all in their head when they're telling you what they're seeing too. Like, that's really tough. Like, Mm -hmm. so I understand that that's one of those conversations in the autism community in and of itself. It's got to be really tough to have. Yeah. If you um, have time, I will recommend watching uh, Vice Investigates, the anti-vaxxer movement. I believe it's the show that they have on Hulu. Um, But I'm sure if you're, if you have their app, um, I'll link to it there. on the, the page for this episode. Yeah, too. that's, it's a very informative evidence-based perspective on the anti-vaxxer movement in general, yeah. not just autism specific, yeah. um, because the, the anti-vaxxer movement, there are some other components to it that don't just involve autism. Yeah. Um, so again, very interesting watch if that's something that you're into and you want to yeah. kind of know a little bit more about. 
But it's got to be tough too, because like, obviously you're someone who's embraced the autism community. I mean, you guys are all supporting each other so much, but obviously on some very fundamental issues, there's going to be disagreement too. Yeah, definitely. And, 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 and that's the other thing too, is that there are certain topics within this community that do divide us, that mm-hmm. it's hard for people, you know, myself professionally as, as a board certified behavior analyst, as someone who has implemented ABA therapy, ABA therapy has a lot of controversy around it. A lot of self-advocating autistic individuals despise and hate and, and say that ABA is traumatic and tell us what ABA uh, means as well. Applied, applied behavior analysis. Thank Sorry. you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sorry. Not um, everyone knows the lingo. So we want to make sure that we, uh... <laughs> I'm so used to just like spouting out like acronyms that it's, you know, but it's also, that's um, part of what you do as an advocate, but also it's what you do nine to five. I mean, if you're having to make mm-hmm. phone calls to advocate for your brother, you know, you do have to throw out the acronyms yeah. because you know what you're talking about. Right. But yeah, so, you know, there are certain topics like that in the community that, that still divide us, the Mm -hmm. vaccinations, ABA, any type of, of treatment that you're going to use, um, it it can cause a big rift and cause a lot of controversy. And, and it's this whole, a lot of it is a back and forth between autism, you know, parents and caregivers, um, and, autistic self-advocates because it's, you know, well, who speaks better for the person, Mm. you know, who can speak better to Rob's perspective, who can speak better for Rob? Mm. Can I speak better as a neurotypical sibling or can, you know, an autistic individual who has lived this life speak better for him? And I don't think it has to be an either or, I think it needs to be a both. Mm. I think you need both perspectives and, but it can be hard because there are some people who are, you know, very adamant that they know better than anybody else. And you see that on both sides, the parent side and the self-advocacy side. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's going to take a while to kind of get people to get on the same page and advocate as a cohesive group and a cohesive community, because how can you advocate for the funding that you need and the support that you need as a, as a community, if, if you are yourself divided? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's so well said. Um, I'm going to slide into the the end of this interview with a couple top three lists, but I wanted to know if there was anything else you wanted to share about your experience before we get into that. Um, I don't, I think I've, I've kind of voiced touched on the main most points. of the things that, yeah, I wanted to touch on. Good. I wanted to make sure that, that you've, you've covered the things you wanted to cover right. too. <laughs> so, um, the first top three list that I, I start with is I'm wondering what your top three tips might be for either a patient who maybe suspects, gee, maybe my behavior isn't neurotypical. Like maybe I I need to get checked or perhaps a caregiver who's going, gee, maybe my kid's not verbal yet, or like seems a little slower to develop or whatever. Like what would you recommend for people who are entering this world of invisible diagnosis? I'm going to keep it pretty simple. Yeah. Advocate. Hmm. research, advocate. <laughs> okay. I love it. <laughs> um, but really though, if, if, if you suspect something is off and you suspect something is wrong, whether it's with yourself or a family member, you have to be the ones that speak up and you have to be the ones that make yourself heard. Hmm. Um, like I said, especially when it comes to these, you know, invisible illnesses that aren't, you know, physically seen, um, v- more often than not, you're not believed right away. Oh, we think it could be this. Oh, it could be that. Oh, I and think you've shared. Fine. You guys went through that already yeah. with your pediatrician. Yeah. So it's so important to advocate, advocate, advocate. And then hopefully when you do receive a diagnosis or if, or if you have an inkling of, of the diagnosis you might have, do your research. Mm-hmm. I mean, get on the internet, find evidence-based sources of information that are going to fill you in a little bit more and maybe help guide you you know, how to have a conversation with your healthcare provider, who to get in touch with, what services your state offers. Mm-hmm. Um, so do your research and then keep advocating, keep speaking up, go to a different doctor, find a different provider if you can, um, you know, call service agencies and see if they offer like, uh, any type of, of diag- diagnostic assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be your biggest advocate either yeah. for yourself or for the person that you're caring for. Yeah. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. 
What about, this one's just for you, top three (laughs) things that give you as an advocate, and you can even say anything if there's anything for Rob as a patient, um, because we know he has a few favorite things too, that give (laughs) you guys unbridled joy, things that you're completely unwilling to compromise on in life. So this could be, you know, guilty pleasure, secret indulgences, comfort activities, or just the things that make you so damn happy, you'll never give them up. What are your top three? Um, I think collectively myself and Rob, (laughs) we love to watch Disney movies and (laughs) we love to watch old Sesame street videos together. It's, it's just, these are things from our childhood that we have so many memories attached to. And it's, it's all of these songs that we used to sing to Rob from Sesame street and the Disney movies. I mean, it's something that we can still come together as a family and, and love and have a great time, you know, watching movies together and eating popcorn. Um, it's, Um, that's really awesome. Yeah. Um, and I think too, we're big foodies. We, we love our snacks. We love our food. So, you know, for Rob, it's, he, he can be quite to, insistent about his favorites, can't he? <laughs> yes, yes, he can just a little bit. Um, <laughs> he has very specific and refined tastes. <laughs> and he will let you know. Yes, he will. <laughs> um, but we love to bake. We love baking. Mm. My mom, um, every year around Christmas time, makes big batches of Christmas cookies. And Robert's favorite are the white chocolate chip cookies that she makes. Mm. Um, oh, so good. You know, little little colored sprinkles on top there. Ah, fantastic. fantastic. Rob also likes to put a little touch of pink frosting on top on occasion. He's got <laughs> such good taste. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so that's something else too that, that we kind of really connect over and, mm. and and love to do. And it's something that we would never give up. You know, we recently made a batch of cookie dough and kept some in the freezer and baked off some cookies so that mm. we can kind of make those, um, whenever we need, if Rob needs a little bit of a, of a pick me up there. Yeah. Christmas time is actually a really special time with Rob too. Cause he's got quite a few sort of treats that he gets over Christmas, which is, it is. And that was Christmas village. That was the other thing I was going to say is, is Christmas time and Christmas yeah. decorations. That's, you know, the holiday that, that seems to get Rob the most excited, which in turn, you know, that's something that like we as a family love to witness too, because to mm. see Rob so happy to come out from his bed, we usually try to decorate in secret when he's sleeping. Oh, that's so we'll, cute. Yeah. We'll try to do a big changeover and set up his whole village with all of his light up ornaments and his singing toys and everything. So that when he wakes up, he just like walks out into it. Yeah. Um, and it's awesome. It's he he interacts with all of his stuff in his village, and and he knows what he likes and what he doesn't like, and he'll pull things out. If like my mom put a, <laughs> a, a like plastic reindeer in there that he doesn't, he just like. doesn't like, like. I don't yeah. want that in my village. <laughs> like, I don't agree. Take that out. This doesn't belong. Here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's really sweet. I love that your top three is entwined with Rob in that way because it just really goes to show how much joy there is, despite how, I mean, this has not been an easy conversation to have, you know, like there's a mm-hmm. lot of ups and downs in the treatment plan and the long-term care and the changes that you've all had to make to accommodate Rob. But by the same token, that's all outweighed entirely by the joy that you get from seeing him happy and well. And that to me is the the underlying story with all of the work that you do and hopefully with what people will get out of this interview too is that like it's about sharing joy and sharing love and that's what we get from seeing you guys all together and it's such a joy i literally when we started this interview i thought to myself oh when's christmas cuz i just can't wait to watch <laughs> rob freak out about his his villain right <laughs> it's the best thing to watch and i mean look i don't i haven't met rob in person i've only had the pleasure of meeting you but like i feel like i know you guys so well and i really encourage everyone who's tuning in today to to check you guys out um and check out more of your story and just get more of an understanding of what it's like to have an autistic adult in your life who's just a joyful, loving person. Um, it's just, it's such a joy to watch. I get so much joy. I'm having, if I'm having a crappy day, I them oh. underscore IRL because I know that there will be something that Rob has achieved that will have given him joy that I will get joy out of watching him, you know, like, and that's, what's, it's so wonderful. I, I, can't speak more highly of you guys because I'm obsessed, but you know, it's (laughs) it's so wonderful to watch and to be on that journey with you guys. And, you know, I can't thank you enough for creating this content, you know, purely by pressing record 
when you're doing what you do, because it, it really gives us wonderful insight into a very full and happy life that you guys all have together. Well, thanks. Yeah, of course. Can you remind everyone where to find you and your work as well online so they can follow along too? Yes, we are on Instagram um, and the handle is at autism underscore IRL. Yep. As in, in real life, y'all, because yes, in real life, IRL. <laughs> in real life, look, there are ups and downs, but ultimately it's about joy. So definitely you know, so much for being on the show today. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.